Turn with me to Hosea chapter 1. We will be looking in Hosea 1 verses 10 and 11 today, and then we'll be moving on to verse 1 of chapter 2. Kind of finish up that thought. So just three verses in our text today. But there's a lot there. So before we go to God's word, let's go to him again in prayer and ask for his help. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word this morning again, we've already been reminded from the book of Judges that you are a worker of mighty things, that you can take ordinary men and have them do the extraordinary. And I can think of no more extraordinary work than changing the hearts of men and women from those being dead in their sin to those that can understand the very words of life. So, Father, I pray that as we open your word, that you would do that mighty work, that you would cause us to see your word, to be changed by it, to obey the things that we hear in it, that you would even do the mighty work of using the faulty vessel to deliver your holy word. Be here among us as we read and hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I read through this text, uh, these three verses and really pairing it with the verses that we had last week concerning the three children of Hosea, for some reason I kept going back to a movie that you've all seen or most of you have seen. If you haven't, you probably should see it at some point. Uh, And it's called Back to the Future. And Marty is the main character in it. And he has to go back in time to save another one of the characters. But he also ends up saving some other people as kind of this side thing that he's doing as well. It really kind of becomes the main thrust of the movie along the way. And the whole problem in, in all the movies is really that you change something in the past and it starts to change something in the future, right? And that's, that's kind of the idea there. And that's exactly what starts to happen. As he goes about changing things in the past, I'm not going to tell you any of the details. Again, it's a really, really good movie. You should watch it. But this picture that he has of him and his siblings starts to change. In fact, he and his two siblings start to disappear from the picture. And he even starts to feel it as he's living in the, the past. And as his own actions are putting his future in jeopardy. It's kind of this interesting thing where he acts as a kind of redeemer of his own siblings and himself in a way. In our text today, we also have a picture of three children. And these three children are in need of redemption. Not only in the same way that you and I are in need of redemption, just in that we are born in sin. Hosea's three children were indeed born in sin, as all children are. But they're given names that are very, I don't know what the word is, very unbecoming, right? They're very uh, difficult names 
Can't imagine being called them from day to day. And their own names are in need of desperate redemption. Israel's past, present, and future are on display in the relationship that Hosea has with his wife, Gomer, and their three children, Jezreel, which sounds like a good not name, but then Jezreel, no mercy, and not my children. Today features one of the most redemptive texts in all the Old Testament. It sticks out as one of the prime reasons why believers should study the Old Testament as much as they study the New Testament. The New Testament is really nothing more than a commentary of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we have the underpinnings of redemption. And that redemption through Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's all the way back here in Hosea and Isaiah and all the books that we see in the Old Testament. As we move through the text today, we're going to see Hosea's children featured again. But this time, the theme is redemption. And as we move through a book that has lots of words of judgment, as we move through Hosea, we're going to see lots of harsh words of the people of God. We're going to have to continually anchor ourselves here in these words that we read today. We're going to look at three points, again, centered around the redemption of Hosea's three children. First, the redemption of Jezreel, then the redemption of no mercy, and finally, the redemption of not my children. So with that, let's look together at the text. Hosea 1, verse 10, reading through chapter 2, verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Hosea 1, starting at verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for the for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So remember, last week, quick review, we talked about the birth of Hosea's three children, how we suspect even that two of them probably weren't even his, right? The the first one that we read about was his, but the second two probably weren't. Gomer, his wife, was a prostitute. And it's likely that she had children with other men, but Hosea took them in as his own from all that we can understand from the text. And these children were given names by God himself in order to show the past sins and the present realities of the northern kingdom in Israel where Hosea did his ministry. Jezreel was one of the children's names, spoke of a city in which there was so much corruption and bloodshed had taken place in Israel's past that there was this curse pronounced on it. It was a place that represented continual idolatry of the people and of the kings of the people. No mercy and not my children represented a change or a seeming change in the relationship between God and his people. Remember we said no mercy represented a change in God's Treatment of Israel, like a mother discarding a nursing child. That would be the picture of no mercy. 
and not my children, representing the undoing of the covenant relationship between God and His people. It's literally the antithesis of I will be your God and you will be my people. And so we, we're, we're stuck here, right? Well, I thought, I thought God didn't change. Well, we know God doesn't change. His relationship with His people isn't dependent upon the changing emotions and the changing behaviors of those people, but on the eternal decree of a sovereign Lord. So as we come to this passage today, we see just that, an unchanged relationship that God cannot give up on his people. Judge them? Yes. Discipline them? Yes. Turn his back on them? Ultimately? Never. Even while they and we are yet unfaithful, God remains ever faithful because he cannot become something that he is not. He's the father of his people, he's the redeemer, and he cannot change that. That brings us to the first point, the redemption of Jezreel. Let's look again at verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in its place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said children of the living God. And the children of Judah, the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. They shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. I love that this passage starts us off with the word yet. Because if there's going to be this thing that happens yet, there's going to be another thing that also happens that's going to be a little bit different. And then it might change the direction of the former thing. It's kind of like... When you hear the news, right? The entire house burned to the ground, yet the family was saved. That completely changes the news for us, right? The coming destruction of the northern kingdom has been prophesied already in the name of the child Jezreel, which we read last week. Yet we read that there's going to be some who are still around after this is over. While the kingdom is going to fall, there's going to be some still left who call their name Israel. It's the idea of the remnant that is featured so prominently in the book of Isaiah, which has already been read from this morning. You may remember from our own study in that book, so I think it's important for us to go back and read one particularly clear passage concerning that remnant. There's lots of passages in the book of Isaiah concerning the remnant. But we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 10. So turn with me there. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 through 23. The first part of the book of Isaiah deals a lot with the northern kingdom. And this, this kind of shows us that pretty plainly here. Isaiah 10, 20 through 23. In that day, considering the day of the, uh, the day that the northern kingdom is destroyed, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, 
overflowing with righteousness. So in this day concerning the destruction of Israel, we have this kind of near fulfillment, as I like to say. You have a near and a far kind of thing. This near fulfillment of that is the literal destruction of the northern kingdom. Notice what's going on. This remnant of Israel is not only getting to return to their land, but more importantly, they are returning to their Lord. And notice the language in verse 22. This is the language that we've already read this morning from Hosea chapter 1. We have this idea of the sand of the sea. We've read this several times in the scriptures up to this point. In Genesis 22, when Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, and he's waited forever for this son, right? And the Lord tells him, Abraham, your children will be as the sand on the seashore. This is something, this is a promise. This is a language that Israel is very familiar with. Destruction is decreed, the Lord reminds us, yet it's going to be overflowing with righteousness. While judgment is necessary in the end, the people of God will be considered righteous. This, of course, points directly to Jesus who became sin, that the people of God might become the very righteousness of God. So that when we go back to Hosea and we read, yet the number of children in Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. This represents that remnant of the original. Reminds us of what Paul says in Romans 9. What does he say concerning Israel? Well, not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. God retains a remnant, true Israel, for himself. His people have one head, verse 11. They come together, again, Judah and Israel come together, one head, and they shall go up from the land in this great day when the people will come back together and they have been redeemed. And what is this great day called? Jezreel. Redeeming the name. The nation of Israel longed for the day when it could be one people again. This is going to come to fruition When both the exiles of Assyria and Babylon ultimately return home, the remnant of the northern kingdom would return to Jerusalem along with those in Judah. They would rebuild together the city and the temple. Yet there is a greater day. This is pointing toward its coming and it's the coming of our Lord Jesus. One head over his covenant people in that great day of redemption. Jezreel. That land of corruption and bloodshed that represented the sins of the people, the sins of the kings of the people, the idolatry of the nation will be redeemed in the coming Son of Man. And where is this Son of Man to sit for all eternity? On the David's throne, redeeming that. For us today, as we wade through the politics of our own nation and the nations of the world existing today, We see that the people of God, that nation that stands the entire globe, the invisible church of God, full of people who await their heavenly home. We see a people that we see that the people of God have been set aside, as it were, retained for a greater and future land. That doesn't mean that we don't love the place that we're in. Absolutely not. We seek to prosper it in every way, and we should. 
seek to prosper it, yet we long for our heavenly home. And this earth will pass away and the heavenly reality will be here. I think it's easy to get wrapped up in that today, especially as our own country seems to be shriveling up before our eyes. This isn't our eternal home. Though we should seek the welfare of this place and show mercy to those who live in it, just as we have been shown mercy. That brings us to the second point, the redemption of no mercy. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 2. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. We use the word mercy quite a bit as Christians. It often gets mingled with the word grace. And from time to time, it's helpful for us to talk about these words that we use so much. What do they ultimately mean? Those two words are not the same at all. They have different meanings. Remember, back in chapter 1, verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. God told Hosea that he would no longer show mercy on Israel. And how did he categorize that idea of mercy to to forgive them at all? The idea of mercy here is tied directly to forgiveness. Mercy, by definition, needs forgiveness in order to be mercy. Without forgiveness, there is no mercy. So if mercy needs forgiveness, then that means there must be some sort of wrong that has been committed, right? We understand this pretty simply. So when we show mercy to someone, when I show mercy to someone, I am foregoing the judgment that we might have otherwise given to them. And we forgive them instead. Mercy is never deserved then. By definition, there's no such thing as deserved mercy. It's like an oxymoron. It's the opposite of mercy is justice. Justice is getting exactly what you deserve. It's one of the first things I tell my students in the classroom. You do not want fairness. You want mercy every time. Fairness is always getting exactly what you deserve. Mercy is getting it even though you don't deserve it. So when God says, say to your sisters, you have received mercy, he is undoing the name of that poor little girl named No Mercy. It's no mistake that he should say to your sisters, that little girl named No Mercy. Imagine Hosea hearing these words, looking at his daughter, a little girl born in the image of God whose name was no mercy, and then being able to say to her, mercy. We too can say that to one another even. You have received mercy. We have had our names changed, as it were. As Christians, we take the mercy of God for granted so many times. It indeed has been granted to us, but not because we've earned it. Again, mercy cannot be earned. So without the New Testament, without the New Testament shedding light on this for us, it may seem odd that God would simply 
let go of the transgressions of the past, right? Because they're very dense. As we read through the Old Testament, we see that the transgressions of the people of God are very dense. They're all over the place. You can't get through the Old Testament without tripping over them all the time. And so that he would just simply let go of those sins and show the people mercy would seem really strange to us. But those sins are still there. God is a God of justice, just as well as he is a God of mercy. He is both at the same time. We have difficulty with this, but God has no difficulty. Though he has removed our sins, as the scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, they don't stop existing. They have to be dealt with. God said God cannot simply forget about sin or he would cease to be God. Justice is as essential to his character as is mercy. And the one way that he could possibly do both to show mercy on his people and also carry out justice is that there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be someone to take on the sins of all of those people for all time. And so understand then, brothers and sisters in Christ, with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on him because of the sins of the people. In order to look at his people and say mercy, in order to say to them, say to your sisters, you have received mercy. In order for him to do that, he had to look at Jesus and say, no mercy. When he writes here, you have received mercy. That mercy came with a high price. And it's because of that high price that we are also looked at and called my children. And that brings us to the last point, the redemption of not my children. For me, personally, this is the most difficult of the three names of Hosea's children. I regularly refer to my family as my people. Not as a kind of a, I don't know how to even think about it, how it may be seen as negative, but it's not a diminutive thing at all. It's a term of endearment. When I look at my family and I think my people, it's a, it's a term that just fills me with the love that I have for them. It's not a term that, I'm, again, I'm not showing my authority or anything like that, but it's to show my inclusion in this very exclusive group, right, that is my family. I don't just look at any people and say, my people. It's a very special group that I say that to. So when I read this, I imagine Hosea with his family, with his youngest son, who probably, again, isn't even his biological son, being called not my people. Though Hosea may have had some the same kind of pride and desire to say, my people, as he looked at his family, he would always have the thought that one of those children was literally named, not my people. So we understand the dilemma. And God looks at his own people and says in verse 8, You shall call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. These are hard words. Even though none of them deserved any, deserved to be called the people of God in the first place, right? This is still a difficult thing to get through. 
when I read this, it reminded me of Jesus's words in Matthew chapter seven. That there will be some on whom Jesus will look and say, away from me. I never knew you. And it won't be those who are obviously evil, right? It'll be those that were seemingly doing the things that they should have been doing. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7 again. We go here from time to time. But I think it's a very important passage for us. Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 23. The important context here in Matthew chapter 7 is Jesus is, this is, he's finishing up the Sermon on the Mount. And the, the primary goal of the Sermon on the Mount is to, to walk through the law of God, demonstrating to the people that they are completely unable to follow it at all, and that they need a Savior. He's demonstrating himself as that Savior. And so in chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is tough. To look at these people that are seemingly his people and for him to say, I never knew you. You're not my people. Notice Jesus does give us clear indication about those who will enter his kingdom. No one will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. What is that? Some kind of secret that we need to discover in our life here on earth. What is the secret will of God? No, he tells us in multiple places. But in John 6, verse 40, Jesus says, for this is the will of my father. Pretty plain, right? This is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. Those people that Jesus was talking about did not claim the Son. Instead, they claimed their own good works when they stood before the throne of judgment. And this is going to be said of those two. Back in Hosea 1, verse 10. Were it not for Jesus. Look what's said of them now. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. How? How is this even possible? People who have such a gap between the righteousness of God and their own goodness. How? Jesus told us, right? Believe in the Son. Believe in the one who was sent to redeem these poor children of Hosea and to redeem the whole people of God from their sins. You and I in that number. He came as a ransom for many to take upon himself the sins of the world so that many would be found righteous in his sight. Christians, we are called children of God, not by anything that we've done, but by the work of God alone. Because of his work, we read in John 1 that we have been given the right to, 
to be called children of God. The redemptive work of Jesus is complete in his eternal sacrifice. We have been shown mercy. We have been called his children. And what greater reason do we have then to praise him? We will spend an eternity praising his name and thanking him for this work of redemption. But what about until then? We're here on this earth. What should we be doing to the one who looked at us and said, mercy? We should show mercy just as we've been shown mercy. And but what what better way to do that than to tell them about Jesus? Tell others. The message should be as simple as Jesus' message. Repent, turn from your sins, and believe. If you're here this morning and you count yourself as an unbeliever, this is the message that I have for you. Repent, believe in the Son whom He has sent. Stop relying on your goodness to save you. When you stand before Jesus, are you going to list off all the good things that you have done? Are you going to claim the righteousness of Christ? Repent from your wickedness. Believe in Jesus Christ. Unless you believe in him, he will look at you on that day and say, away from me. I never knew you. Call upon his name today and be saved. In conclusion, brothers and sisters in Christ, we read today of the redemption of the name of Hosea's children and how it points to our own redemption. Really the redemption of all of God's children in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. How then shall we live? We live to praise the name of Jesus, not only in our own personal lives, in all that we do and all that we say, but we also give this message and we have this message to give to a lost world. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we read here about the redemption of these three children, Lord, help us to see our own redemption in it. That we have been shown mercy, even though we should be called no mercy. We have been called your children, even though we should be called not my people. And it's not because we have somehow earned it. We haven't gained any stature before you. But instead, we have you. We have your righteousness as we stand before our Holy Father. Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to understand that in our own lives as we begin to be discomforted by things that seem so big, that seem so insurmountable. Help us to understand that the most insurmountable thing possible is overcoming our own sin before a holy God, and yet it has been done for us in completion for all eternity. Lord, help us to be faithful with that message of truth to a world that is desperate for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.